Well, as the kiddos leave, if you'd like to remove your mask, you're welcome to, you know, pressure to, but you could turn to Daniel 1. Actually, a little bit before you turn to Daniel 1, if you have our app, go ahead and open it. And as you scroll down there on the first screen that you come to, uh, it's called your home screen on our Journey SI app. I want you to click on the, the image that looks like this uh, Restore Network um, banquet image there, and I want you to just listen for a moment. If you're here and part of the journey, I know you've heard us talk about Restore, and, um, and I know that you know that it's dear to my heart personally, and you hear a lot, but I, I also know that sometimes it can be difficult to know, okay, exactly what is that, and, and what do they do, and, and how are we involved, and, and things like that. And so uh, a negative of, or, or a, you know, a positive out of the, the negative pandemic is that they can, they have an annual fundraiser every year. It's usually up in the Metro East area. It is one of the primary uh, sources of their funding. And because of the pandemic, we can't gather six or 700 people in a room. And so we're doing that in smaller venues all throughout. And that's exciting to me because we, it's been difficult to get folks from down here to travel that far for an evening and a banquet. And so this year we're able to gather right here. So we will be gathering here. This is going to be transformed into uh, you know, tables and chairs. We're gonna have a nice uh, banquet evening uh, with a catered meal, and we're gonna simul we're gonna watch the simulcast together. We're gonna have an opportunity to give together. And so here's the two opportunities. One, some of you just aren't quite sure what Restore is. This is a great chance to hear about the ministry of Restore, what God is doing, and what the needs are. And then two, um, this is one of the primary fundraisers. And so you, if you give to the journey, you do give to Restore. It's one of our, our partner. Um, ministries, and so you get to come and, and hear a little bit about what God has done through our gifts. And then three, uh, as, as I don't know if you follow the news, there's lots of controversy about, you know, religious freedom and can this organization serve in this way and, and you know, getting those things shut down. Well, the beauty of Restore is they're not funded by, one of the beauties of Restore is they're not funded by the state or government in any way, so they are free to respond in a Christ-like way, but that happens because people like us show up and, and support that ministry. So March 25th, I want you, I don't, I don't care if you're like, man, I don't know anything about foster care. I don't think I should. The, again, we've talked about it before. This is something all of God's people should care about. Not all can foster, and we know that, but all can do something, and this is something we can all do, is we can attend this event, can hear more about it, plan to give some to it, but also it's a chance to just hear and celebrate what's happening. So I would love for you to invite friends. It's not just a journey thing. There's other uh, churches and people in our region doing the same thing with a watch party. We'd love to fill this room up and have to look for more spaces. So we do need you to sign up because we are doing a meal. So we need you to sign up. So you can do that right from the app. Um, on the app, I've put some other you know, ways for you to know a little bit more about Restore, watch a video of kind of how it got started here in Williamson. I want you to pray and uh, explore that if you would, um, and consider joining us March 25th from 7 to 8 here in this room um, for the banquet. All right, so now let's go to Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to go ahead and uh, pray and just ask God's uh, blessing because it's, it's, we're going to walk through it a little bit different. So instead of reading the passage today, uh, before I pray, I'm going to pray and ask God's help, and then we'll jump in together. God, I just ask that you would continue to uh, help our church be on mission and um, be the salt and the light in a city on a hill uh, in the midst of a broken world. Father, I bring the Restore Network banquet before you, and I ask that you would move in our hearts to be obedient to you, not compelled by some emotional story about children. We should be moved by that. However, Father, may we as your people be obedient to you and help us with that. Help us to know what, what our response should be to that. And Father, as we approach your word now, 
We want to start by just confessing that it is that, it is your word. And we want to invite you specifically into this moment to help us to understand your word, to receive it, and to respond. Father, we need your spirit's help to do that. We are uh, stiff-necked, we are hard-hearted, and we are dull of understanding without your spirit coming and moving. So we ask your help in that. Use me to that end. Um, use your spirit to deliver your word to us, your people. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, um, it's been about a year since our world came to a, a halt and all sorts of confusion. And in that last year, we've all experienced collectively this disruption and change in how we interact with one another, right? And, you know, some have, we, I'm not trying to stir up the different feelings that everybody has on that because I know they're strong, but just acknowledge the fact that, that we have experienced some shift in that together. And, and one of the things that, that comes with that. Um, is just the realization that, man, we're not meant to do life alone, right? That, that you, we've seen that just from a secular observation and study standpoint. You look at psychologists and, and different you know, people studying sociology. Like, there has been major implications for mental health and, and all sorts of things that have happened as we have been sort of shut down from our nor normal rhythms of life and gathering. And there's also, I understand there's many other factors in that. But, but what, I, what I'm pointing out is that we ha have seen it proven that we're not made to do life alone. But the thing about it, as we had to pause some of our normal interactions, what didn't happen is the, the, the rest of life didn't pause and wait on us. Right, that life continued to happen and tragedies continued to happen and losses continued to happen. And for many people, that, those seem to actually be cranked up a notch. And as we have those sorts of things happen in our life, and then we're not able to gather together to mourn, grieve, or celebrate, or, or walk with one another, then it gets amplified even more how much we need one another. Right, And of course, this is... This is all just affirming what the Bible has been um, declaring to us from the beginning, that part of being made in the image of God is that we're made to do life together. We talk about this often in the journey. We invite people into community because it's not just about having friends. It's about having people that, that believe what we believe and push us toward Jesus, push us toward our faith. And so that is important, and we hear that all the time. Here is, here's the deal. This year served as a reminder, and as we dive into this part of chapter 2 in Daniel, we're going to see that it's, it's hugely important that we have our people, that we have our, our community in place before crisis hits. That we have community in place before crisis hits so that when it does, not if, but when it does, we have our systems in place. We can't wait and then call and expect to have connections and expect it all to work out well. We need to have that as a rhythm, as a part of our life. And so Daniel comes to this crazy scene um, in um, this, this crazy kingdom of Babylon. Um, we, we've talked about how he's been carried off into that uh, against his will. He's been given a new name. Um, everything has been changed for him. He's placed in this training program, this um, indoctrination program, this university of Babylon, if you will, uh, in order to be used for this foreign kingdom's advancement and growth. And now, again, even though in some ways things have gone well and, and he's, he's been able to prosper to some degree, he's still living under the rule of, of this guy named Nebuchadnezzar, who was uh, the king of Babylon that, that you know, lasted the longest, but he was still a tyrant. He was still off, uh, you know, off the rails a bit. And in this story, we see that Daniel and his friends are going to be thrust into a crisis by this king. And um, we're going to see the power 
of God's people gathered together and praying. We're going to see the power of God's people and the power of prayer and community of God's people on display in this passage. So I'm going to give you a quick overview of what happens in the story because we're going to go through 30 verses today and we're going to, we're going to preach through them. We're going to read it and preach as we go instead of reading, or, you know, reading it all together and then preaching and pulling out some points. So I'm going to give you an overview of what happens and then we'll walk through the verses together and sort of preach it quickly as we go. So Daniel and his friends are in this, this, Babylon, this Babylonian empire and that king Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and it freaks him out. And he doesn't know, and he's unsettled, he can't sleep, and he calls all of his council of magicians and, you know, all of the, the, the people who have sort of, you know, dream interpretation on their job resume together and say, hey, you, you have to not only give me the interpretation, but actually tell me what the dream was and the interpretation, and if you don't, I'm going to kill you all. And that's crazy, but that's what he does. And so they go, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Nobody could do that. And he goes, yeah, now you've all made me mad. You're going to die anyway. And so he makes this decree to kill all the wise men, all of the people in this culture, which includes Daniel and his friends. And so Daniel moves in response to that, goes to the person who's coming for their head and says, hey, hold on, give me, give me time and I'll come before the king and give him his interpretation. That's a bold move and we'll get into that in just a moment. But Daniel then retreats, pulls away with his friends into his community, if you will. They hit their knees in prayer, plead for God's mercy. God shows up in power, gives them the dream and the interpretation and then Daniel goes before the king, the guy who has uh, the power to lop off his head with no consequences, and he goes before the king and declares the, 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 not just the dream and the interpretation, but the glory of the God who gave Daniel that dream and interpretation. And it's a, it's a beautiful moment where Daniel saves his friends and his own life, and the glory of God is on display before this crazy king, Nebuchadnezzar. So that's sort of the overview. Now, let's, let's, so you know where we're headed. Let's jump in and walk through it together. Daniel chapter one or chapter two, verse one says this: In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And the king commanded that the, mag the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. So this is common in, in ancient world. They they considered they they took a lot of. Uh, they put a lot of stock in their dreams. They considered them to be significant, and they, they often considered them to be sort of a foreshadowing of the future, right, of what was coming. And especially when it, whenever they were involving a king, this was likely, they, they believed, to, uh, you know, involve everybody, right? Because what, what's happening with the king and the direction that he takes is going to have implications for everyone. And so they took dreams seriously. They believed that they were um, you know, revelations and, and directions and foretellings of what was coming. And so it was common for not just Nebuchadnezzar, but you see this in a lot of different kings and, and you know, stories in the Bible and just in history, that they would have sort of this staff of uh, diviners, if you will, where they were uh, different people. Some were magicians and enchanters and, and, um, and then there's just this uh, sorcerers, right? So this is, these are people that are all familiar, they, they, they dabble in the spiritual realm, right, in the non-material and interpreting these things. They, they use like the shape of like animals' hearts and abnormal births and the, the astrology and things like that to, to sort of recognize patterns and try to predict the future. This was, and there was a lot of stock put in them. So many kings would have sort of this staff of these this group of guys, group of men, that, that, that was their specialty. So this is not uncommon for this to be, um, the, the case is not uncommon for this to happen. However, 
um, you see that, that this becomes common. There's just this group called the Chaldeans, and that is previously just referred to the Babylonian people, the people from that region, but it sort of shifts to refer to this group of people who were dream interpreters and sorcerer and, and dealt in that world of the supernatural, if you will. And so he calls them all together. That's not uncommon, but what is uncommon. He says, hey, I had a dream. My spirit is troubled to know the dream. So you think about this guy is the ruler of the known world, and yet his fragility is on display, and it rattles him so much. This dream rattles him so much that he loses sleep. Like, this is the guy, he answers to no one. You understand this, right? He answers to no one. He's wealthy. He has all that he could desire, and yet a dream rattles him so much that he loses sleep, and he's quite frankly freaked out. And he says, my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Now, there's confusion and um, not a consensus amongst commentators of whether or not uh, Nebuchadnezzar could remember the dream because what happens next is he, he's not just a normal, uh, hey, give me your interpretation of the dream, but he says, um, he says, hey, my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And so they all respond, oh, king, live forever. This is not uncommon for them. Oh, yeah, king, live forever. Tell us, tell us your dream, verse uh, 4 and we'll show you the interpretation. Verse five, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, your word, or the word from me is firm. So he said, listen, I'm not changing my mind on this. This is the deal. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. This is crazy. So again, not uncommon for kings to have dreams and say, hey, help me interpret this. But he throws a curveball at everybody. He says, hey, my spirit's troubled. I'm disturbed. I haven't slept. I need to know both the dream and its interpretation. So he's not even just going to give them the dream and then, you know, receive. He, he said, I need to know, you need to tell me the dream and its interpretation. And if you don't, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. He's not speaking figuratively. He means literally he will have them torn limb from limb and have their houses destroyed. Like that's the threat. That, and it's not just the threat. It is, it is, he said, this is firm. This is what, I'm not kidding. This has got me so disturbed that this is the direction that we're moving. Uh, they said in verse seven, they, they, uh, answered him a second time and said, uh, King, uh, you're going to have to tell us a dream, and, and then we'll show you the interpretation, which is, which is fair, right? Like, it, it's fair. But they, the king answered and says, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you could tell me its interpretation. What's going on here? The king is, listen, sometimes you just want people, when you seek advice, sometimes you just want people to tell you what you want to hear, right? You don't really want to be challenged. You just want somebody, you just want, and sometimes you'll even seek out the certain people that you know will agree with you, right? You know, you know, come on now, y'all, I'm not the only one. When you, you really want to do something, but you're, you kind of got to check in your spirit and you're seeking advice, a lot of times you're just going to go to the people that you know, oh yeah, they, they, they value the same things as me, they'll agree with me. We, we avoid the people who you know are going to challenge us, right? And so, listen, sometimes the king's got dreams and he just wants people to help him 
kind of make sense of it, put some pieces together and go, yeah, yeah, tell him how great is, he is and that his reign and his rule are going to continue on. And that's sort of what he wanted. The king is so disturbed in this instance, he wants no BS. He wants none of that. He wants nobody telling him what he thinks they want or what they think he wants to hear, right? He wants none of that. And so he sort of knows that these guys are smooth talkers. He sort of knows that's part of their deal. But he's so disturbed. He's saying, listen, I need to know the interpretation of this. And only somebody with actual power that's connected to the, for him it would be God's, can give me this. And so in order to prove that, that you are actually qualified to tell me the interpretation, he says, you need to be able to tell me the dream as well. And they go, uh, hey, no, nobody, nobody can do that, King. Uh, you, you, you've, you know, with respect, you've, you've lost it. And he says, listen, I know you're just buying time because you don't know the answer. Um, and he goes on to say, no, no, I'm not kidding. This is the sentence. Either do it or you die. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, hey, uh, king, I want you to imagine their posture here. Uh, there's not a man on earth who can meet your demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. So he's saying, listen, king, you're out of line. Nobody can do this. And frankly, nobody's ever asked for this to be done, king, with, with respect. The king, the thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. So he, they want to say, listen, nobody can do this. Nobody has this power. Only the gods can. And they're not here. We can't ask them. That, that's beyond our degree. These guys all went through the program that, that Daniel did. Their three-year you know, degrees are in dream interpretation and astrology and all of these things. This is their specialty. They understand how to interpret dreams. Give me the dream. I got books for that. I got rules. Okay, this means that. But you're just asking for the dream. King. Like nobody can, can read your mind, King. And so this is unreasonable. So this is the posture. This is the, uh, the response from them. And this does not go well with the king. Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very Furious, and he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the king went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them as well. So the king moves from just saying, hey, if you can't do this, I'm going to have you torn limb from limb. If you can, you'll receive riches and rewards. And then he, they, they make him angry enough that he says, you know what? You're all worthless. You're all done. I'm going to kill you all. I want you to think about the investment like, I want you to think about the magnitude, not just the life, but if you're just thinking from a king's standpoint, the investment of these people that he's given, like all of these guys that are going through this training program are eating food from his table, right? We see that from Daniel and his friends in chapter one, right? These, these are high-level invest, invested in officials and leaders in the, the kingdom. It was supposed to be the future influencers and leaders of the kingdom, Right, He spent a lot of money training, investing in these guys to bring them to this place. And in a moment, he decides to kill them all. But Daniel, so Daniel is included in that, right? He's included in that group of wise men. Like he, he, He's got that degree as well. If you remember, he tests better than all of them, 10 times more. Daniel and his friends at the end of this sort of three-year period. And so Daniel is, is included in that deal. So he sends the guy out. They're, they got the kill order. All the wise men are going to be put to death, and they come to find Daniel and his companions to kill them. Verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion, 
This is huge. We see this as a pattern for Daniel. Daniel is a teenager still. Right? He's a young man. And yet, regularly, he, he displays both prudence and wisdom. Listen to me, young people. You do not have permission or a pass to just be ignorant or just to have fun and to sow your wild oats like that whole deal. I don't know if you even say that anymore. That's probably showing my age. Whatever y'all deal, get lit, do your thing. I don't, know what, I don't know what they say nowadays, but you don't have a free pass. You are actually expected and empowered and, and able to live with wisdom and with prudence. Daniel shows this once again. And frankly, church, this should be something that marks all of us as Christians. Wisdom and prudence should be something that, that we have. Why? Because we know the one who has it. We, we talked about a few weeks ago that the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord, right? The fear of God is the beginning of of wisdom. We are the ones as Christians, as God's people, who actually know the one who has the source of wisdom, and therefore it should mark all of us. We should be a people who respond differently. As the world is freaking out and, and, and you know, dividing up into this lane and that lane, or this party and that party, or this worldview and that worldview, and there's huge division and there's fighting and everybody wants to take the other one down and cancel everybody else, we as Christians should be able to respond with wisdom, Right? That involves some nuance. That means we don't, we don't go to those poles. We don't just react in ideologies. We rather are able to hear the whole deal and go, you know what? Maybe there is wisdom in that. Maybe there is wisdom. We, that should mark us as Christians. Nuance, wisdom. And, and, and Dan, Daniel, listen, I want you, how would you have reacted? The dude with the king's kill order, and he's probably not rolling by himself, Right? They show up, and they're looking to kill you. How are you responding? Right? Panic, fear, rebellion. You know, maybe you're, you're trying to get, you know, uh, a resistance going. You know, how would you respond? Daniel responds with prudence and with wisdom, and he just, once again, has a conversation. Again, we forget this as Christians. Like, we can actually speak to one another. We could speak to the people in charge. We could speak to the people who are making the decisions. And he just, he says to Arioch, the, the captain of the king's guard, verse 14, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Um, verse 15, he declared or he responded and, and asked, is another way to say, um, answered and said, rather than declared, he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? So he says, hey, why does this happen to ha have to happen right now? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, so he explains what's going on. And 16, Daniel says, went and requested that the king to appoint, or re requested the king to appoint him a time that he may show the interpretation to the king. So Daniel goes, hey, what, what's going on? Why does this have to happen so fast? Arioch gives him the deal, and Daniel goes, hey, give me an appointment. Give me an appointment before the king, and I'll show him the interpretation. This is, think about that. We just read this in faith. Oh, yeah, Daniel does a good thing. But no, no, think about what's happening here. The king has just asked for somebody to tell him what his dream was. And the child, you know, the Chaldeans rightly go, hey, nobody can do that, dude. That's irrational. That's crazy talk. Nobody's ever asked for that to be done, and nobody's ever been able to do that. What does Daniel do? He goes, hey, give, give, me, a, give me a moment. Give me an appointment before the king, and I'll show him the interpretation. This reminds me of... of of David, as, as he rolls up on the field of the Israelites, and they're all in panic uh, as Goliath is mocking them, right? And the people of Israel, the whole Israelite army, has already rightly assessed that nobody's beating that guy. 
that Goliath has won the battle, right? They're all looking around. They're seeing that dude. They've seen the heads he's lopped off, and they're going, no, no we, don't, we don't win this. We step onto that field, we don't step off, right? So they're all rightly terrified. David rolls up and goes, hey, what's, what, what's going on? What, what are you scared of? And they go, go, that guy. David goes, I'll fight him. And they're like, but dude, you're like a kid, and uh, he's not. He's huge. You're going to die. He goes, no, I got him. My God will fight the battle for me. Right? And there's just this bold confidence from Daniel. Daniel goes, hey, I've seen God before. He's, he's allowed me to kill lions and bears with my bare hands. That joker, I got it. Like, the Lord will handle it. And David steps in with that confidence, and so does Daniel. Daniel goes, all right, nobody can do this. I know my God can. Give me an appointment. Let me, like, give me a chance to stand before the king. It's crazy. He asked for the very thing that the, the king had just freaked out on everybody else for asking, what, for more time. And yet... He's granted that. So then this is the story, and this is where we draw in. This is the crisis, and Daniel goes where? Verse 17, Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, and told them to what? Seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in the army. So what does he do? Where's Daniel go? Does he go hit the textbooks, right? Maybe, maybe there's something he missed, in, in college about dream, you know, receiving, right? Maybe I missed that class. Let me just go scour the books. Now what's he do? He goes where? He goes to community group. You realize that, church? He says, y'all, we got to meet. There's a crisis. Gather right now. Okay, what you're doing? Everybody shows up. My house. We're praying. He goes to group, Right? These are his boys, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. These are, these are his guys. This is not the first time they've gathered together. This is not the first time they've had crisis together. They love each other. They're with each other. They know they got each other's back. And when crisis comes, Daniel goes, hey, I need you. We're here. We're gathering. We're hitting our knees. And that's exactly what they did. Listen, here's the deal, church. As I said, the intro, we need our people. We need our community before crisis. Right? We can't just microwave community and relationships whenever you need it. You can't just wait until the wheels fall off of your life and a diagnosis comes or a death comes or a divorce is imminent and, and then you need to reach out to people. If you do that, if you keep thinking that you're okay, that you've got this, that you're stronger than most and you don't need people and that sort of thing, or maybe you have good reasons to stay away from community because you've been hurt before or you've seen really silly people in that community before and you don't want any part of it. And so whatever you're telling yourself, keeping you from engaging with God's people and keeping you to, from living life in community the way that God has commanded and designed us, whatever that is, that's going to keep you at this place whenever, listen, crisis will come. It will. It's not a matter of if, but when. And if you don't have that in place, then you're not going to know who to call. Listen, God's people are still gracious. I'm not saying we don't answer that call. I'm not saying that you can't still call people and, and come in, but it, it's so much richer. It's so much more meaningful whenever you've been in community. People know your stuff, and all you have to say is, I'm struggling, I'm scared. Please pray for me. Please help me. And those people, I've seen some of those stories I talked about this year, Right? There's been tragedies even within our church and within many of your lives. And I've seen so many times, I've seen both things played out actually. I've seen people that have gone through tragedy and all they've had to do is make a call and their community's there in the middle of the night. Late at night and they're there with one another. They're prayer walking around each other's houses. They're loving on each other. They're bringing meals. They're showing up. I've seen other people go through tragedies and they haven't had that. So then, it's, then there's, a, there's a comfort level. I know I need somebody, but 
I don't know where to start. I don't know how to get into that. And listen, the church is still going to show up. We're still going to respond. But you need your people before crisis happens. And what do they do? They pray. And not just this, oh, Lord, help us. They pray with an intentionality, and they seek. What do they seek? It's interesting. What's the word there? They seek in verse 18. It told them to do what? Seek. What's the language? Mercy. What does mercy mean? Listen, mer- mercy is when you, deserve, when you know you deserve a punishment and you're asking if you could not receive it, right? Mercy is not getting something that you do indeed deserve. Now, it's interesting. Did Daniel and his friends do anything wrong? No. Right? They're victims in this situation. In fact, they're victims in the whole exile situation, right? God's disciplining his people at large. That's why they're in Babylon in exile, but... That's for something that Daniel's parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and that whole generations before him did, not Daniel himself. And yet, they don't come in with an entitlement of how dare you, God, or how could you, God. Rather, they come in asking for mercy. What does that mean? That means they're confessing from the start that, hey, Lord, your plan is just. Listen, he knows that God is in control. That's what's allowed him to get this far without losing all of his faith and all of his mind is knowing that God is the one who allowed his king Jehoiakim to be handed into the the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. He knows that God is doing a work in the the people of God and in history. And so he's able to trust that. and And he's by asking for mercy, you are saying, God, I know that your plan is just. And whatever you have planned, even if it is to kill us all, you are justified in that. You realize that? Do you start your prayers that way? God, you'd be totally right if you just killed us all. But I'm going to ask you don't. I'm going to ask that you wouldn't. I'm going to ask for mercy. He asked them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So mercy is not getting what we deserve. There's an acknowledgement that what God is doing is bigger than them. And when we approach God by, and we start by acknowledging that he's in control, that he's just with his plan, and then we're able to, as his people, come before his throne to ask for mercy. Let's talk about prayer for just a moment. Again, and we're going to talk about prayer later in the book too. But again, we often throw out Ephesians 6 and the armor of God that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? But it's against the powers of darkness and spiritual powers and principalities of this world, right? So we, we know that, we acknowledge that at certain times, but then we, we don't, so often we don't turn to God and we don't do battle in the way that we're commanded to do, the way 2 Corinthians 10 would tell us, hey, we don't have you know, weapons of the flesh like everybody else. We have these powers to destroy strongholds, and, and that is often prayer. Like that prayer is, if we're in battle, if we're in a war, right, which Ephesians 6 and otherwise says that we are, then prayer is like us calling in back to the base, back for air support, saying, Lord, you, you see what we don't see. All, all we got is this information right here, and it's not looking good right? Show us what you see that we don't see. Show us what to do next. It's us calling back in. It's our communications with Command Central saying, Lord, help me to see what you see. What should our next move be? I can't see around this corner. We're about to be killed. Help us to see. Commentator D. Duke says that almost everyone believes that prayer is important. 
But there's a distinction between believing that prayer is important and believing that prayer is essential. Essential means that there are things that will not happen without prayer. Listen, people of God, part of what allows us to live as a people within a larger people, right? Or a community within a culture, a city within a city, right? How we live as the kingdom of God is that we are a people who have resources that the rest of the world doesn't have, doesn't have access to. As they're trying to solve the world's problems and division and make sense of things, they don't have access to the resources that God's people do. And that's part of what defines us as his people is we can come before God, not because we deserve it, right? But as Hebrews 4, 16 says that we can approach the throne of grace to receive mercy in our time of need. Listen, Daniel has requested a time to stand before the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And you don't just do that. You don't just go, hey, I'm going to go talk to the king. You don't go unsummoned. And if you go and, and he's not pleased with your showing up, he can have you uh, beheaded on the spot. Like, you don't just walk up to this guy. This is a king who answers to no one. There's no, you know, human rights organization saying, hey, you can't tear people from limb to limb. That's not, you know, there's nobody moving in to take him out of power. He will have to answer to no one on earth for whatever he does to these people. And Daniel has requested a showing before him. He's requested an audience with this king. But the reason he's able to do that without fear is because he knows that he can go to the king of kings and boldly approach his throne and that the king of kings holds Nebuchadnezzar's power in his hands, that all, that the, all the power that Nebuchadnezzar has, he was only given by God, the king of kings, in the first place. And so Daniel goes, no, I can go to the real king and I can go to his throne and I can approach with boldness because... He's invited me because I know that it's on his mercy. So they say, don't destroy us. Please help us see what to do next. And listen, God answers the prayer. It's crazy. We pray so often. And, and if you're, you know, if you're like me, sometimes you struggle. You know it's the right thing to do, right? As the quote said, we know that we, we believe that praying is important, right? We know it's the right thing to do. It's what we should do. But do we believe that God's actually going to do something when we pray? Do we pray expectantly in that way? I think for so many of us, we, we've lived life that's pretty comfortable and we have doctors and we have things, we have other resources, so we sort of throw this prayer up because we know we're supposed to, but we're really trusting in other things. We're not actually expecting that God would move. Here's the deal. If God doesn't move, they're losing their heads. If God doesn't move, their life is coming to an end and they come before God and they're seeking mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that they might not be destroyed. Verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. That's a, uh, the language there. It, it was a dream. So what's crazy is Daniel prays with his boys and then goes to bed. What kind of, like, really, dude? You got an appointment with the king tomorrow. You're supposed to give this dream and its interpretation. You got none of it. You're going to go and take a nap. That's crazy, but what it is is faith. Like, Daniel trusts that God's going to show up. It's like David stepping onto the battlefield with just a few slings and a stone. He's trusting that God's going to show up. He's trusting that God's going to move. So Daniel takes a nap 
In his nap, God answers the prayer. It's crazy. So often we, we pray and we ask, well, God, maybe you'll move in that moment. Maybe you'll move right now. Maybe you'll heal this person. And then if he doesn't, we just assume he, he said no or he didn't hear our prayers and we go on. Daniel prays, leaves it with the Lord and expects him to show up. And Daniel goes to bed and the vision of the night, God reveals the mystery to Daniel. He reveals the mystery. He shows him the dream. We're going to see next week that Daniel is going to be able to tell the dream word for word what he saw and what it means. But I want you to imagine that that was you. You and all your friends are about to be killed. You've asked for one chance to stand before the king and give him what he wants, save everybody's life. You've prayed, you've asked, and then you get it. God gives you the answer. Where are you going? What's your first deal? I'm running right to Ariok, right? Let me in. I got it. I'm ready. Let me, let me tell the king so we can get all this stopped. What does Daniel do? What does Daniel do? Look at this. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He breaks into song. Daniel stops and praises God. In this moment, like before he goes and handles the situation, he stops and praises God. Daniel answered him and said, or answered God and said, blessed be the name of God forever." And ever to whom wisdom or to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes the times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Listen, too often, we as God's people, we don't pray, maybe at all, and when we do, we don't pray expectantly. We don't expect that God's going to show up in power, that he's going to, like, we still think it's up to us, right? And we still got to get to work and expect maybe God will just kind of give us that final boost to, to really get it done. We don't expect him to show up supernaturally. And then, oftentimes, when he does answer the prayer, when he does bring the healing, when he does bring the good news, when he does bring the answer, sometimes we just have a relief and go on about our day. We don't stop and praise him, right? We can become like the nine out of the ten lepers when Jesus heals them. They don't come back and give him thanks at all. They just go on about their life. This can't be true of us. Like There's such a, a distinction about Daniel's posture where he is not fearing, as we looked at a few weeks ago, he's not fearing Nebuchadnezzar. He's fearing the God of the universe. And as a result, he asked God to give him this, this mystery. God does, and he stops and gives him praise. Here's the deal, church. We are God's people. And that sounds flippant. I want you to think about the world around us. The dissension, the division, the confusion. And you can, you know... We, we can think about them and right how it's just them, whether it's the other political party or it's this progressionist or social justice warrior, like whatever you want, whoever you want to villainize. And we could just sit there and lob, you know, accusations and fuss at them. But here's the deal. We're the people of God. And as a as a as the people of God, as, as the people of God, we are the, the citizens of this kingdom. And that doesn't just mean we have these values and we just wait to go to heaven. We have the power through our God to actually advance his kingdom, right? You understand that? That that's what's going on here. It's not just, oh, the Lord, you know, 
he, he kind of looked away for a minute. Nebuchadnezzar got out of control. He's about ready to kill everybody. Hey, Lord, can you clean this mess up? No, no, God's at work doing something in this. He's allowed these, these young men to, to be in this place. And we see them acknowledging that by their seeking the Lord's mercy. They're not pretending they're entitled to be saved. They're just saying, hey, Lord, I know you're at work in this. Would you please, by your mercy, not destroy us, and in fact, use us for your glory. When we, as God's people, live that way, we're not just, we don't just pray to survive. We don't just pray to, to get some comfort through the trials. We pray to advance the kingdom of God. We pray as a means of the kingdom going forward. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 says that, that we don't have like powers that everybody else has. We're not fighting the, the, these battles with the same weapons that everybody else, but rather we have the power To destroy strongholds. For though we walk in the flesh, it says, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So when we gather together as a group or as a church and we don't pray, we don't ask and we don't pray expectantly, we don't ask God to move, we're like fools who go in with a whole armory and a whole you know, platoon of weapons and we just go in with our sidearms just trying to take everybody out and everybody's like, hey, why didn't you use like the, you know, the semi-automatic weapons and the 50 cals and the 240s and you know, your grenades and your rocket propelled you know, grenade launchers, like why, why didn't you use all that? And you're just like, I don't know, I mean, it would have been some work, I, I don't know, I'm not really familiar with it. And you're like, dude, you can win this battle. Like l unleash those things on your enemy. And that's we as the church, when we don't pray, when we don't hit our knees as a collective group of people and ask for God, God to move, ask for God to show up, to heal, to, listen, how many of you have somebody in your life that your heart is broken that they've walked away from the Lord or that they've never turned to the Lord? Raise your hand. How many of you have somebody in your life that you are terrified for their fate? You're terrified for the direction that their life is headed. If we don't hit our knees, not just personally, but as a group, as a church, and ask for God to move, then we're leaving all kinds of firepower back at the truck. We, as the people of God, have weapons that destroy strongholds. You're like, oh, that person's been in addiction for years. Oh, no, nothing's happened yet. Uh, no, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what, if the Lord doesn't show up and really you know, shake them awake or, or whatever. We say things like this flippantly, but are we boldly like hitting our knees and asking God to show up and to shake them awake and to move? Listen, all throughout the scripture, we see this. I was challenged just this week, right? We're going to have some changes here at the, at the journey, right? Starting next week, we're going to... 9 to 10, we're, I'm inviting all of you. We're going to pray for our service. We're going to pray that the Spirit moves. We're going to pray that he shows up in service. So it's just going to be a weekly rhythm, 9 to 10, prayer team. We have, some of you just consider that your gift, and praise God, we haven't, and, and praise God, and also, I'm asking your forgiveness because we have not utilized that well. We've had ladies that come up to the church and pray through the week, and, and we want to leverage that. We want to begin to ask God to move in his church. And it's not a formula, oh, if we pray this amount, then we'll end up with this. No, no, no. But we want to begin to ask God boldly to show up in our services. So next week, 9 o'clock right here, right out these doors and to the right, there's a prayer room, and we're going to have some things on the board that we're asking God specifically to do. We're asking you to join us. And I don't know if it'll start this week or next, but... We're going to begin having a midweek prayer time too. And I know not everybody can make it here physically, but as a staff and, 
Anybody who can, we're just going to pray for an hour through the week, and we're just going to ask God to use our church and to move in our midst. We'll pray for your prayer requests. We'll pray generally. We, and, and I was challenged by this just this week by a dear brother, Caleb, as we were talking through things of the church, and he just suggested, he says, hey, I've been at a church that did a lot of things wrong, but they did this really well, and this was some of the things that they, they, they had a culture of prayer. And I said, you know what? The Lord is moving in this. We see this in this passage. I'm, I'm just trying to surrender and say, you know what? You're right. Because my default, if I'm honest, is I need to do it better, Work, at, work things better, preach better, get a better organization, and I'll ask God to bless those things. That's foolishness. That's foolishness. I don't have the power to break strongholds. It doesn't matter how good I preach. If God doesn't show up in us, if God doesn't show up in our midst, we're to be pitied. Listen, the world's going to look at us, and they're going to pity us, though. It looks foolish to pray in the midst of coming and impending destruction, doesn't it? The world's going to look at that and go, I've even heard it, right? As some of the tragedies have happened in our culture and people just say prayers for this family or prayers for this tragedy, I've heard people on the other side go, stop praying. It does, it, it's, they've almost received it as a mockery. And sometimes they're right because we just throw it out as this just like default, out, you know, praying for this family or praying for that. And we're not actually praying. And I've been as guilty as this for everybody. I, I'm praying for you. But unless you're hitting your knees and pleading with God for mercy on their behalf and in their situation, don't say you're praying for them. You're probably not, right? It's cheap. We've gotten to the point where talking, talking about prayer is cheap in our culture. We need, to, we need to move beyond that. We need to lean in because, listen, some of us are more in tune to it than others, depending on the life we live and the people that are around us. But there are strongholds, right? Here in Marion, Williamson County, Southern Illinois, there are strongholds, Right? Addiction, meth, opioid, which leads to broken families, which leads to a perpetual cycle of that. More broken families, more kids out of wedlock, more kids without families who just have more kids, and the cycle continues and continues and continues. You don't think three or four generations in, or even one generation into that, sexual abuse and addiction and substance abuse, and you don't think that creates some strongholds? absolutely does. And the Lord has his people, his church. It's like a dormant monster waiting to be unleashed on the world for the good of the world. We as God's people need to be asking God to move specifically in the lives of people, specifically in the lives of those we love, specifically in our church. As the word goes out, we need to be asking God to move, set people free, free from addictions, free from sin, free from struggle, <clears throat> bring healing. Like, here's the deal. Daniel has a gift of dream interpretation. We, look, we walk through the spiritual gifts in, in 1 Corinthians. Right? We looked at all sorts of things that are supernatural when God shows up in power. Right? And it's unfamiliar to many of us. And yet, this is on display. Daniel has this gift, and God is using it for the advancement of his kingdom. He's using it for his glory. And so if we don't gather together as a people and pray regularly for the advancement of God's kingdom, then we're not being faithful to what God has called us to do. We're not living as God's people. So don't wait until a crisis to get connected. Get connected, and then we, as we get connected, 
We need to be, as we are gathering together as a connected people, we need to be praying and praying fervently and fasting and asking God to show up and to work. So Daniel gives praise because God answers the prayer. Like we need to believe as God's people, when we pray to him, he hears our prayer and he will answer. He will move. It's not name and claim it. It's not saying, God, we, we ask this in your name and we just, you know, God has to do what we do. We claim. No, no, no. It's not like that. But we ask for mercy. And we believe that he's in control. We submit ourselves to that, and we expect that he's going to answer it. And he does. He shows up in a vision and power. It's crazy. We're going to see a lot of visions and dreams in Daniel. A vision is something you have when you're awake, right? A dream is something you have when you're asleep. But God moves in power in those ways. We see it often in Daniel, and it's still how God works oftentimes, or at least sometimes, in his church. Verse 24, we've got to move <clears throat> Quick. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, right? This is the, the guy with the kill order, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. <clears throat> he went and said this to him. Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king. I'll show him the interpretation. So he says, I got it. I got the answer. Let me before the king. We'll fix all this. So <clears throat> verse 25, Arioch brought Daniel in before the king in haste. So he's in a hurry. He doesn't want to, like it, it seems to imply he doesn't really want to kill all these guys. He says, listen, I found among the exiles of Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. That was the Babylonian name that they gave Daniel. He says, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? And Daniel says, no. hey, listen, king, you, you got it all wrong. No wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Right? This is the king. We're going to see as we get into next week in the interpretation of what the dream was. The king is freaked out. He doesn't know what the meaning of life is. He doesn't know what his purpose is. He's not asking it in that language, but this guy is unsettled. He's not sure what to do. This is like somebody saying, hey, can you help me make sense of life? Can you help me make sense of these tragedies? Can you help me make sense of what I'm put here to do? And Daniel says, you know what? No. I can't, and neither can your whole, you know, gaggle of sorcerers. But, he says in verse 28, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions in your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed <clears throat> came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom, right? So he's saying, hey, this is not, I didn't get this from your University of Babylon. I didn't get this from the education you put me in. <clears throat> but in order, <clears throat> it's not been because of any wisdom that I have in all the living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel's saying, listen, this is not the work of any man. This is not the work of just some good education. God has showed up and he's got a message for you. Right? God has showed up. God gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream, and God gave Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's presence to interpret that dream and to give him the dream. So Nebuchadnezzar knows right, that Daniel has the authority and the connection to a God because he actually gives him the dream, and, and it, God is use, using Daniel to show that he's superior to all the wisdom of the age, to all of the the resources of the age, and God shows up to, to say, hey, I'm at work in this. I'm in power over Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm going to use my people in your midst of this Babylonian empire to advance my kingdom. We're going to look at how the story, this particular story ends next week, but I want to wrap up with just a couple of thoughts. The big idea is that there's power in prayer and in community. When God's people pray together, there's power anytime a righteous man pray. Like there's anytime one of God's people come before the throne, there's power in that. But it is 
multiply and exponentially increased as we come together. We see this, right? Uh, this is one of the things that Caleb reminded me of this week. When you see God move in power and acts, right? When, at Pentecost, what was going on there? They were all gathered together in the upper room praying. And then God shows up in power, right? You see Acts 5, Peter gets locked up in prison. No way out. But prayers were made for him or on his behalf by the church. So you get the people of God praying that God would do something. God sends an angel, opens up the door of the prison, and sets Peter free. You see this over and over again. God's people gathering to pray and God moving in powerful ways. He encourages us later in James. He says, listen, you're sick. Call upon the church to pray. Like gather together, confess your sins to one another, and then pray with one another that God shows up and moves in power. When we as his people ask on his name together, he moves. And again, it's not that we have the power to wield and do what God, you know, make God do what we want him to do. But when we ask for mercy, when we ask for him to, to move, God is pleased to move in that way, to flex his muscle, to show that his weapons and his power are well beyond anything of the flesh. So we as his people need to be defined by that. And we, the only way that we're going to be defined by that, we're going to continue to get pushed in to community to live that out is if we remember that, hey, our God is the God who knows all things. Our God is the God who's in control of all things. And this passage defines us as, as God's people because it points us ahead to the coming Jesus. Because just like Daniel one of the points of this book and of this particular chapter is that no amount of wisdom, morality, achievement, or money, etc., can save us from a death sentence, right? It doesn't matter how well Daniel did or how smart he was or, you know, how well he did in college and graduated summa cum laude and, you know, was really moral and upright in front of all of his friends, but no, no, it, it doesn't matter. The death sentence was still there, and unless God intervened, they were going to die, and we are like Daniel, except we are actually guilty. And we, in our sin, are hopeless unless God intervenes, unless he shows up. Right? The Chaldeans said to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, unless God becomes flesh, nobody can do what you're asking for us to do. And that points us to Jesus, because unless God becomes flesh, there would be no atonement for our sin. You and I are in a death sentence. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We're all going to face judgment, and we're all guilty under that sentence. But, and, and unless God shows up, unless he intervenes, we are all hopeless in that sentence. And the good news is that God does become flesh, and he steps in, and he, and he lives. He draws near to us as he lives among us, disproving the theology of the Chaldeans, saying that, hey, gods don't live among men. Indeed, they do. Or indeed, our God does, right? John 1.14 says that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. Praise God. In this passage, we see that Daniel gave thanks to God for his deliverance. He stops and gives thanks to God for his deliverance. Years and years later, Jesus would stop and give thanks to God for the deliverance that he was about to bring through his own sacrificial death. He modeled, Jesus modeled for us this whole life of thanksgiving, even giving thanks for a trial from which there would be no deliverance for Jesus. Jesus is there at the Passover, the Last Supper, with his disciples, and he gives thanks for the bread that he was about to break, an action that was going to symbolize the breaking of his own body on behalf of the sin. Jesus 
in this is, is, is reminding us that he's the one who knows all. He's the one who sees all. He's the one in control of all. We need to be reminded of what Daniel prayed. Listen, here's the deal, church. Daniel prayed, and he says, listen, you're the God who knows all of the hidden things and what's in the darkness, and light dwells with you. Here's the deal. God knows what's in the darkness. And that's like general spirit, spiritual powers at work, but also specific. He knows what's in the darkness of your own life. He knows what's been hidden. He knows what's been done to you. He knows what's been done by you. He knows the things that happened to you as a kid. He knows the things that like, you're doing in secret. Like, that's, that's our God. And yet, light dwells with him, and he is eager to bring us into salvation. And so Jesus, as he was headed toward that trial, as he's headed toward the cross, gives us this meal that we observe each week. You go and get communion out. I want you to think about it in this way. I want you to, want you to reflect on the, the body of Christ being broken. In Matthew 26, it says just that, that Jesus blessed the bread, that he gave thanks for it. You realize that? He's giving thanks to, to God for, for something that's about to take his life. He breaks the body and he says, take and eat. This is his way of reminding us, listen, you're hopeless without me. You're hopeless without divine intervention. And yet I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly take and eat. And then likewise, he took the cup. Jack, I think we got that passage in Matthew 26. Likewise, we've, we took the cup, the cup that, that would mean life for us, but was going to indeed mean suffering for Jesus and woe for him. And Jesus again gave thanks for it. Jesus thus gives thanks ahead of time for the cross, the most unjust and agonizing trial that ever, ever faced a person. In the, the face of that, Jesus gives thanks. He's not minimizing the cost of the cross. Jesus is later going to pray himself into sweat that turns into blood over the agony that awaited him, but he knew what it would gain. He knew that, that through it, God would redeem for himself a holy people that would be all, his for all of eternity. By the cross, God would deliver us from death and fit us for eternally, eternal life in heaven. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what defines us as a people, that we know that Jesus. We know that king, and he didn't just leave us to our sins. He doesn't just leave us undone and kind of listen to our prayers and say, oh, that's cute. It says he heard our cry, and he stepped in, stepped off his throne to do battle with the evil one and to make a way for us. That is our king, and that defines us as a people, and we come together before his throne, and we ask, Lord, Give us mercy and use us to advance your kingdom. Church, there's power in being the church. There's power in participating in the church and being the people of God. So as you take the cup, as you remember Jesus' bloodshed, remember that he won the war. He put himself on the line so that you and I might be forgiven. It's a meal that we take together as a people of God. It's not for you if you're here and you're not a Christian. This might seem weird, and in fact, there would be warnings against you or against you taking it lightly, and yet it is a reminder, a window into the goodness that God has revealed, that God has given to us as his people, and we rejoice as we partake. Let's pray. God, would you help us? Would your spirit come and, and reveal that you are the God who knows all secrets and all darkness, and the light dwells within you, and that we as your people can come to the light, that we can come and receive mercy. Be with us as we sing and as we praise. Would you send us your spirit, <clears throat> spirit, Lord, to empower 
our response. For those that don't know you, Lord, would you give them the faith to step out and receive you as their Savior, that we are sinners, Lord, and that without you we have no hope. For the rest of us, Lord, would you break chains? Would you set us free? Would you do your work of redemption and kingdom advancement in our own hearts and collectively as a church? Help us to be shaped and defined by being your people. May we use your power and your weapons to break strongholds. Would you do that work now? We ask it and hope it in Jesus' name. Amen.